Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and thank you so much for joining us again this week. Almost as soon as we started planning this podcast, I knew that one of the guests we had to have on was Scott Klusendorf. Now, any of you who have worked in the pro-life movement in any capacity will have heard of Scott Klusendorf. I think uh, Scott Klusendorf's a short but brilliant book, Pro-Life 101, was the very first piece of pro-life literature that I received as a, a pro-life student when I was back uh, rabble-rousing on campus as the head of a pro-life club. And that book was just so essential for helping me and so many other young pro-life activists really ha- understand how to present our case uh, persuasively, how to get out there and feel confident that we could defend the pro-life position. And Scott Klusendorf has been doing that for thousands and thousands of students for decades now. He runs Life Training Institute, which has a whole team of speakers. And Scott travels throughout the United States and Canada, training people on how to defend the case for life. I would go so far as to say uh, that he is the West's or North America's foremost pro-life apologist. He's sort of defined the field of pro-life apologetics. And in doing so, he has in many ways reshaped the American pro-life movement because he has just trained so many pro-life leaders and young students who ended up in leadership positions in the pro-life movement. And it was Scott Klusendorf's training and his books that first gave them the confidence to step out and to actually start engaging the culture on this issue. Pro-Life 101 is a very short little book, but it's based on a longer book that was published in 2009 called The Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture. And Scott practices what he preaches as well. He has debated many prominent abortion advocates, including Nadine Strossand, who was the president of the ACLU uh, from 1991 to 2008. He's also debated Kathy Kneer, the president of Planned Parenthood of California. And when he gets out on the stage and he engages people who are defending abortion uh, with the pro-life apologetics that he himself has done so much to develop, it's really something to watch. You should go check out some of those uh, debates on YouTube. Chuck Colson, uh, the late Chuck Colson, the founder of Prison Fellowship, said about Scott that, quote, Scott first grabbed my attention when Focus on the Family featured one of his presentations on its national broadcast. I was struck by his ability to communicate truth so clearly and so insightfully. I've heard many speakers who deliver excellent content, but few who can actually equip people to communicate their pro-life convictions to a secular culture. In fact, I was so impressed with Scott's talk that I phoned him directly to learn more about his work. After that, I scheduled him as a keynote speaker for our own Breakpoint conference. Uh, Scott is a graduate of the UCLA with honors, and he holds a master's degree in Christian apologetics from Biola University, where he often uh, gives lectures on pro-life apologetics and engaging an increasingly pro-abortion culture. And I'm pleased to call uh, Scott Klusendorf a friend. Uh, I've called him in the past for advice, and Scott Klusendorf is just one of those uh, wise pro-life mentors uh, that everybody, I think, would be benefited by being familiar uh, with him and his work. And so we had a discussion on the state of the pro-life movement today and a little bit about how he ended up full-time in the pro-life movement and how he became uh, such a key figure in the American pro-life movement. He would disagree with my analysis, uh, but it's my podcast, so I'm going to describe him that way because I think uh, that he deserves it.
Without any more introduction from me, here is my conversation with pro-life apologist Scott Klusendorf. So just to start off, uh, you've been doing pro-life work now for decades. How did you first get involved in pro-life work? Because one of the things I've been discussing with people on this podcast is how they got involved. Because it's safe to say that everybody has a different story about how they got involved. But it's just as safe to say that nobody's plan was to become a full-time pro-life activist. Well, I think Father John Newhoff put it real well, the late editor of First Things. He said those who lead the pro-life movement were summoned into it. And I was summoned into this, Jonathan, in November of 1990 when I went to hear Greg Cunningham give a presentation to pastors in Los Angeles, California. And that event should have had a 100 other pastors at it. Indeed, whenever there was a district pastor's breakfast, it was always well attended, except when the topic was abortion. But that particular Saturday morning in November of 1990, it was myself and four or five other pastors and their wives. That was it. But thankfully, Greg was not deterred by that. He gave a very persuasive defense of the pro-life view and a call to action. And I sat there thinking, boy, I like this guy. He's not like others I've heard who are pro-life who kind of hurt the brain to listen to. This guy's intelligent. He's got a law background. He's got a political background. And he's engaging. But then he did something that changed the trajectory of my life forever. He showed an eight-minute video depicting abortion. Well, I had never seen abortion. I had never uh, even been exposed to images of it. I had certainly formed an opinion that abortion was wrong, but I had not gotten to the point where I was convinced I had to do something about it as a life's vocation. But as I was watching those images of the aborted children, everything changed. And what happened is I moved from being attitudinally opposed to abortion to becoming behaviorally opposed to abortion. And Jonathan, make no mistake what did it. It was the images. It wasn't just the arguments. The arguments were persuasive. The arguments were necessary. But that's not what pushed me over the edge. What pushed me over the edge was seeing the images. And that is why to this day, uh, nearly 30 years later, I make the images a centerpiece of my pro-life apologetics presentations, because if we don't change how people feel about abortion, we're not going to be able to change how they think and ultimately behave. And that day was my summons. So when you got summoned into the pro-life movement, what was what, what happened next? I know that you worked for, for the Center for Bioethical Reform for quite some time before uh, you launched off into the beginning of, of what it is that you do now, which is teach uh, pro-life apologetics to, to young people and, and to many people full-time. But what were especially those early years in the pro-life movement like? Because uh, speaking from my experience, at least, it's the pro-life movement. It's it's a crazy world. You experience things you'd never experience doing any other career path. And it, it, it changes you profoundly uh, to such an extent that one day you look up and you realize that, you know, you're part of a movement that most people don't really understand. Or want to be part of. Right. That wish would just go away. Yeah, you're right. Well, what happened immediately after that November 1990 summons, I was working at the time as an associate pastor at a church in Southern California. And six months later, with the blessing of the church, I was so bothered by what I had seen at that presentation that Saturday morning that I resigned my position and began working full-time 
to equip pro-lifers how to make a case for the pro-life view. Now, this was way before we had the Internet, so that meant learning about abortion by going down to the UCLA Medical Library and burying myself in microfiche transcripts and journal articles that I could summon up and books I could pull off the shelves and photocopy portions of. And I read everything I could get my hands on and built up a knowledge base, which, by the way, for your pro-life listeners who are uh, hearing this conversation right now, the very first thing they need to do is get smart on this issue. They need to read and beef up their stock level of knowledge so that they can think on their feet and respond correctly when they're asked uh, questions. And that's what I attempted to do. And I spent a year uh, reading everything I could get my hands on. Then I figured out I needed to earn some money uh, because I wasn't (laughs) being paid. I had been hired by Center for Bioethical Reform, Greg Cunningham's organization, but uh, Greg was not in a position to pay a salary, so I had to raise my own support. And I struggled doing that for a while. Uh, I was broke, flat broke, for uh, a good year and a half. My wife and I struggled as we were in the midst of beginning a family to figure out how we're going to pay these bills. And it was a tough go for a while. But then I consulted with the Navigators and Campus Crusade for Christ, and I thought, hey, if they can train staff how to raise support to be missionaries and to be uh, campus Bible study leaders, why can't pro-lifers learn to do this? So I began a training seminar where I began training pro-lifers how to raise the support necessary to sustain themselves in full-time pro-life activism. And this was necessary because, as Greg often pointed out, there are more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. And that's because killing babies is profitable while saving them is costly. And if we are going to win this fight, we have to have large numbers of professionally trained and sustained pro-life advocates who can work full-time the way Planned Parenthood can work full-time, the way that the media can work full-time, the way that law schools can work full-time promoting abortion. We need more full-time help. So that was the focus of my early career getting myself funded and getting others into the game full time. And then after that, I came in contact with a fellow by the name of Greg Kokel at Stand to Reason. And Greg had done great work uh, making Christian apologetics accessible to lay people. He would take the smart guys, the William Lane Craigs, the J.P. Moreland's and others, and he would make their ideas understandable to people who weren't used to reading at that level of intelligence. And I thought to myself, what we need for the pro-life movement is pro-life apologetics. We need translators who can read the smart guys, the Robbie Georges, the Frank Beckwiths, uh, the Patrick Lees, the others that are out there that have done great work, and make their ideas understandable to rank-and-file pro-lifers. And I devoted myself to that task for the next six years. And then in 2004, I launched LTI, Life Training Institute, for the purpose of equipping pro-lifers to make their case persuasively in the marketplace of ideas. So what was that that shift like personally? Because one of the things, like a lot of a lot of people will will know what you what you do. The, thousands of people have read uh, both The Case for Life as well as Pro-Life 101. Uh, Pro-Life 101 was the first pro-life book I ever got. It was my first introduction to pro-life apologetics uh, more years ago than than I'm willing to readily admit. (laughs) 
what was that like uh, for your family? You mentioned it was it was it was rough going in the beginning, and the reason I I I ask you this is because I have frequently, when giving pro life uh, lectures and presentations, have been asked uh, by young people, "Is it possible to be a married person in the pro life movement?" Uh, and they ask me that. Well, it's only been a little while for me, so I thought I would pose the question uh, to you, and I can refer them all to this interview. What's it like to work full time in the pro life movement? when you're married and growing a family? It's a challenge, but it's worth it. Uh, here's what you have to do. You have to get disciplined. Too often, pro-lifers ask the wrong question. They say, am I motivated to do pro-life work? Well, motivation is subjective. It comes and goes. It's based on feelings. It's in the realm of the personal where discipline is objective. You say, this is what I need to do, and I'm going to do it whether I feel like it or not. So there came a point where I, I realized that if I was going to succeed in pro-life work, if I was going to make it and have a family, remain married, support my wife and kids, I had to become very intentional about raising my support and working to get events that would pay me enough to support a family. And that meant I had to sharpen my speaking skills. I had to be the best I could be on the stage, not because I wanted self-glory, but because that's how you get influence to influence the movement for good. Right. And that's what I wanted to do. The challenges that you, you face as a married person, of course, are not only economic, but you've got to budget your time. You've got to make sure that you're not on the road all the time. Too many Christian leaders have burnt out, lost families lost uh, relationships that are integral to their family structure because right. they're always away. And I determined I couldn't save the world. Only God could save the world. I was going to do my part, and I think sustaining that balance is key. So looking back at, at your career now, and, and one of the things I want to discuss next is, is, the, is the pro-life movement and, and, and how that's progressed, because you have some very interesting views on that. But when you look back at your career right now, what would you say – uh, was the key highlight and the biggest disappointment? Because I always find um, the answers to those questions reveals a lot about the kind of work that you do. I would say the highlight of my work has been realizing that my job as pro-lifer is not to answer the abortion controversy in total, but to pick one area where I could do work better than anybody else could and focus on that like a laser beam. And the highlight for me was realizing that my unique uh, contribution was going after students in captive audience settings. And what I mean by that is going into Catholic and Protestant high schools, Christian colleges, where there's already an audience assembled, where I didn't have to go get the audience. I went to them and delivered the pro-life training they needed to hear. And when I realized that it wasn't on me to do everything in the movement, but to specialize in the one area that I could do, I felt better than anybody else. Then my job got a lot easier. All I had to do then was find like-minded people who shared that and train them to do what I do. And that's how LTI uh, became what it, what it did. I think the, the biggest disappointments always have to do in the area of character. And what a lot of pro-lifers don't realize is that when you engage this battle, you are declaring war on hell. 
and hell is going to fight back. Right. And that means you're going to face character challenges. For example, uh, I have had to deal with pride. I've had to deal with envy. Uh, I remember a time uh, a few years ago, well, it's been more than a few years, so we'll say several years, where I almost turned down a speaking event where I would have been able to talk to 700 students because I wasn't going to be the keynote speaker at that particular conference. Somebody else was who I thought wasn't as good as me. And when it dawned on me that I was about to turn this down simply because of my ego, and I wasn't thinking about the lives that will be saved because I went and spoke, it was a very humbling moment where I had to come to terms with my own sinfulness, my own propensity to put self first. And I think a lot of pro-lifers don't realize that you've got to watch out for these deadly sins that will take root in your soul if you're not looking out for them. And that's a disappointment. I, I look back on that and go, wow, I can't believe I was like that. On the other hand, it was a grace of God that I discovered that because it spared me from doing that in the future. Right. No, that's a very, very important reminder. And and you've always had a, a very keen eagle's eye outlook of, of the American pro-life movement in general. And so one of the things I wanted to talk about with you is I find a, a lot of people, especially now, they really focus on the here and now. But in order to understand the pro-life movement in general, you really have to understand uh, how the pro-life movement began uh, and then progress on to now, because to to a large degree, right now it seems like if you know an atheist with a uh, with a pink mohawk shows up, that person's going to get the most attention, uh, due to the fact that the pro life movement wants to appear current and sexy and all those sorts of things. But when you go back through pro life history, you know to a degree leading up to Roe v. Wade, but especially kicking into gear after Roe v. Wade, and then you join the pro life movement. Uh, when Operation Rescue was still in full swing and civil disobedience uh, was a prominent part of the movement. So how would you summarize the evolution of the pro-life movement uh, for a listener who has just gotten involved in the pro-life movement or has never really taken a look at the history of the movement? Well, here it is in a nutshell. Uh, Leading up to Roe v. Wade, nobody expected the Supreme Court to unilaterally declare that no unborn children had legal protection. That came out of the blue. It caught the movement off guard. Right after Roe, pro-lifers were optimistic that we'd be able to turn this around, that we would quickly get a legislative fix. We thought that the Human Life Amendment and then later a Human Life Bill that was passed by Congress would fix this, but it didn't. Uh, turns out that Democrats who claim to be pro-life when they started running for president, suddenly became abortion choicers. And we didn't have the commitment we thought we did. Uh, Of course, with Ronald Reagan, we got a pro-life president, and we were able to at least get some testimony against abortion established from the bully pulpit of the presidency. Uh, We were certainly able to get some modest, incremental pro-life legislation moving forward. But then came the rescue movement in the the mid to late 80s, and the thought was, look, uh, legislatively, we're not getting it done, so let's go to direct action. And you had uh, Randall Terry, Operation Rescue, huge demonstrations that drew thousands of people uh, to the pro-life cause. But that eventually waned and shut down. And then came what I think was a very destructive turn. Pro-lifers began to think, you know what? Maybe our messaging is wrong. 
maybe instead of talking about the babies, we should talk about the women, right. and we should talk about their subjective needs instead of abortion, which people find uh, as something that turns them off. And that shift from talking about the objective reality of abortion to how abortion impacts women subjectively was fine to do at the pregnancy center level. It was not a good strategy for the movement as a whole. It relativized our argument. And so that's kind of where we uh, are coming out of now. We are now realizing the reason people reject the pro-life movement is not because they don't like us. It's because they don't agree with us. I think that's the state of where we are now. So I'm interested to know where you think we are uh, in terms of it, we're in a very strange place at the moment. And one of the one of the things that I really admire about the pro-life activists who have been here from the beginning is precisely what you said. There are, are pro-life activists like our, our mutual friend Joe Scheidler, for example, who's been around since right after Roe v. Wade. And the number of times they were sure. Uh, that abortion yep. was going to end, that they were sure the final victory was right there on the horizon, only to see it slip from their grasp, uh, to, to speak with him today and realize what a generous, lovely, kind person he still is after suffering Indeed. disappointments of that magnitude never ceases uh, to amaze me. So pro-lifers have, have been constantly thinking that we'd get this done, and it always seems to, to elude us. Republicans have appointed pro-choice judges, uh, that sort of thing. Now, in a bizarre turn of events, you've got a, a Manhattan billionaire with a pro-choice record who has one of the most pro-life administrations in terms of appointees, <laughs> which nobody could have predicted, and, and I will say I nope. certainly didn't. Um, so where are we at in terms of the debate? Society has become more secular. Society has moved away from the Christian worldview enormously in the past two decades, and yet it doesn't appear, uh, based on the polling, that the pro-life movement is losing the American public on this issue. Is that true, or are the stats somewhat deceiving? I don't think we're winning. I think we've managed to survive, and that's a victory in itself. Right. Uh, I view it sort of like Dunkirk. Um, we were on the verge of getting wiped out in 2016. I mean, think about this. Uh, California was forcing pro-life pregnancy centers to refer clients for abortion. The little sisters of the poor were being told if they didn't fund abortion in their health care plans, they would be put out of business. We had religious liberty being eroded before our eyes. And lo and behold, along comes the most unlikely figure who gets elected president, and we keep the Senate, and we end up putting a stop to this. In fact, we even get Supreme Court cases that reverse some of the damage that has been done to religious liberty and pro-life efforts. Nobody saw that coming. You're exactly right on that. So the election of Donald Trump has given, has given us some breathing space. What concerns me now, Jonathan, is the messaging of the movement. Right now, and moving forward into the new year, what I see coming up as the big fight is not whether Donald Trump is the best pro-life president, not whether Nancy Pelosi is going to destroy us, not whether Justin Trudeau is going to further harm our efforts in Canada. Rather, the, the big debate is going to be this. What does it mean to be pro-life? Right. And sadly, there are pro-life leaders who ought to know better, who are buying a failed strategy from 30-plus years ago known as the seamless garment, 
that basically says if you're going to be pro-life, you have to take on all these other issues. You have to be pro-immigration, pro-refugee. You have to be uh, against guns. You have to be uh, against the death penalty. And the list goes on and on. And as Frederick the Great once said, he who fights everywhere fights nowhere. And this is a threat to the survival of the pro-life movement because, as you know, as a full-time pro-life advocate, there's no pro-life organization anywhere just rolling in the money that no. can afford to take on a broader agenda than the one they've got in front of them. And what bothers me about this is a lot of pro-life Christians are buying the premise of our critics that says because we oppose the intentional killing of an innocent human being, we are responsible to fix everything wrong with society. That's just ridiculous. I mean, nobody says to an after-city daycare program that only accepts students five days a week from 3 to 5 p.m., why aren't you open 24-7, and what are you doing about teenagers, and what are you doing to feed the poor in the neighborhood around your daycare center? No, these are criticisms that are only targeted at pro-lifers. Nobody goes to those involved in sex trafficking and says, hey, why aren't you doing anything about abortion? Right. Nobody goes to anti-poverty activists and, and challenges them to be more pro-life. Instead, it's only the pro-life movement that is given this mandate that we somehow have to take on all these other causes to justify the term pro-life. And I'm not buying it. And I will fight it with everything that's in me. And if pro-lifers want to win this fight, we have got to focus on the protection of unborn children. There are bigger platforms and bigger ministries more than willing to take on these other causes and precious few of us willing to stand up for the rights of the unborn. I think my colleague Mark Newman puts it real well. He says pro-life advocates don't need additional causes. They need additional support. Yes. And it's high time that our critics stood up and gave it to us. Now, one of the things that's always confused me about the remanifestation of the seamless garment, I'm not going to comment on those from 30 years ago because, you know, some of them walked the walk. Some of these people actually got arrested in front of abortion clinics and things like sure. that. So uh, I'll, I'll leave them alone. But uh, there's been quite a few uh, of these advocates, uh, especially some prominent Americans that have ended up on Canadian radio. And I've, I've had the misfortune of hearing them in my car uh, delineating their position. And it struck me as strange that these people are genuinely more concerned about the opinion of the New York Times editorial page and a handful of gay activists and radical feminists than they are about actual leadership in the Christian church or, you know, people like Mother Teresa. It genuinely seems like this move towards the seamless garment is to, in order to collect accolades from people that hate the Christian worldview and hate the anti-abortion pro-life message. That's exactly right. They are more concerned about the feelings of the born, as Greg Cunningham says, than they are the lives of the unborn. And they're more worried about what people will say about us than what actually works stopping the killing. And here's the, the interesting part uh, about all of this. When you look at these people who are, are, are doing this, they are not people who are in the field like you are like I am, like those on my speaking team are. They're not in front of students daily in assemblies and debates and chapels. They're sitting somewhere in an office somewhere reading the New York Times, as you very well observed, and they're thinking, how can I get these people to like us better? They don't understand the kind of fight we're in. 
This is not a fight about liking or disliking. And what these people are doing, they're bringing a knife to a gunfight. They don't understand that our enemies want to destroy our movement, and there's nothing we can do to get them to like us save for joining them. The only way they will ever like us is if we surrender our principles, and that's not an option. So there are those uh, who genuinely have noticed that you know the uh, identifying as a Christian has lost all of its all of its cultural cachet, and now that we're despised for a lot of our views, I, you know, people who do pro life activism on the ground, as you pointed out, already know what that feels like. But what about the the people that um, genuinely are pro life? I would say are genuinely anti abortion and are still buying into this. Because uh, there have been certain people who have come forward uh, with the seamless garment approach that have confused me because I don't doubt their pro-life convictions. Right. And it, it's strange to me. Uh, it's also always strange to me that they wouldn't actually speak to anybody who does work on the ground in the pro-life movement. Some of them yeah. have a very similar religious background to yourself, for example. You've been a leader in the movement uh, for a very long time. Uh, I'm sure uh, both you and I can think of any number of other examples of people who could provide helpful insights on these things. So where where in your mind is this coming from in terms of people who actually are anti-abortion and actually are uh, pro-life and have, have good intentions? Here's the distinction they're not making. The problem with these people is not that I doubt their pro-life credentials. They do care about the unborn. They're not like our harsh critics who are just simply trying to change the subject by accusing us of caring only about the unborn. These are what I call friendly, misguided critics. And here's the essential distinction they're not making. They're failing to distinguish between Christian ethics and the operational objectives of the pro-life movement. As a Christian, I will care about a lot of issues. I will care about sex trafficking and do something about it. I will care about poverty. I will care about the needs of my neighbor. These are issues that, uh, as a Christian, I wholeheartedly accept. However, it doesn't follow that the operational objectives of the pro-life movement must be broad and inclusive. Because the minute you tell uh, cash-strapped pro-life groups that they got to take on all these other issues, you've just bankrupted them. They don't even have enough money to, to, to care for the unborn, let alone take on these other issues. And then the whole thing can get uh, reduced to the absurd, Jonathan, if you stop and think about what they're advocating and what it means in the real world. In the real world, what does it mean to be whole life? Does that mean on Monday I get to fight abortion, but on Tuesday I got to fight hunger? On on uh, Wednesday I got to fight sex trafficking. On <laughs> Thursday I got to fight immigration reform. On Friday I got to deal with the refugee crisis. On Saturday the opiate crisis. I mean, this is ridiculous. As soon as you define pro-life as meaning all these other things, the term pro-life loses all of its meaning. It means nothing at that point. And as you have pointed out. The term pro-life has always meant you oppose abortion. Yeah. We don't, nobody goes to the pro-choice movement and says, oh, you're pro-choice? Well, what are you doing about school choice? What are you doing about tax choice? Right. What are you doing about business choice? No, it's only pro-lifers who are attacked this way. And it's an unfair attack, and we shouldn't buy the premise of our critics. And a lot of well-intentioned, good people who do love the unborn have unfortunately bought the premise of our critics instead of fighting back. 
All you got to do to unmask this thing is ask a simple question. How does it follow that because I oppose the intentional killing of an innocent human being, I am responsible for fixing everything wrong with society? Make them answer that question. The phrase useful idiots, not in the insulting derogatory uh, use of the word, but in the historical context, almost immediately jumps to mind. That they are, yeah. they are serving the purposes of the opposition without intending to do so. Well, yes. In fact, any time you see an article with a headline that reads, you can't be pro-life unless, right. then fill in the blank, or you can't be pro-life if you know you are dealing with exactly what you just described. People who are doing the work of our critics without maybe intending to do so, but they are. Yeah, one other thing on that subject, just because it was a fairly vocal argument in pro-life circles uh, briefly in 2018, was, is it is it ethical and can an ethical case be made for voting uh, against somebody who is anti-abortion and for somebody who's pro-abortion because you happen to agree with more of one person's platform than the other? No, uh, the problem with that argument is it tends to assume moral equivalency between all these competing issues. And I am, for the life of me, I can't think of any issue more important than opposing the intentional killing of an innocent human being. Right. Uh, hunger is bad, but nobody is advocating in America or Canada that we legally starve people to death. Although in Canada, with uh, recent euthanasia uh, legislation, that may be changing. But uh, nobody is going to the poor on the streets and saying it ought to be legal to gun them down. But they are saying that with the unborn. And the moral equivalency fallacy is why I, I think that's a problematic argument to make. Now, I do think you could make an argument that says, hey, what does it mean to vote pro-life? Take the United States, for example. Suppose you have a pro-life Democrat at the legislative level, meaning the state house or congressional level, running against a pro-abortion Republican. What would be the pro-life vote in that case? Well, if you understand American politics, you know that at the legislative level, uh, policies are driven by parties more than individuals. And if you put in place a Democratic majority Pro-life legislation is dead on arrival. In fact, the only time a pro-life Democrat would ever get to vote for a pro-life bill would be if his party is not in power, because the Democrats will kill pro-life legislation. In that case, the pro-life vote would be to vote for the party most likely to advance your cause, and that would not be the Democrats. Uh, in Canada, it's certainly not going to be the Liberal Party that does that. Uh, or the NDP. They're not going to support your agenda. So even, let's say, strange as it may seem, suppose there was a pro-life NDP candidate somewhere running against a conservative pro-lifer. Well, uh, you would have to make a decision there. Uh, what is the pro-life vote in that case? To vote for the party that will most likely give us a shot down the road, hopefully at changing things, or vote for the individual? And I say you vote for the party. So when you're looking at, at the future of the pro-life movement, and you've kind of laid out what, what the challenges are, especially internal to the movement, but when you look at the direction the culture is flowing in, what are the external threats to the pro-life movement? And what do you think, if you had to guess, and I know that you know asking people to make predictions is even more dangerous after 2016 than it was before, <laughs> but what would you say, uh, how would you say the future looks for the pro-life movement? 
I think our biggest external threat is the threat to free speech. The left is tyrannical. It wants to shut down opposing views. It has no interest in reasoning with anybody. It just wants to shut down the opposition. And in that kind of environment, our biggest threat is an attempt to legally put us out of business. And I think that uh, had Donald Trump not been elected here, if we had gotten a Clinton presidency, uh, the courts were already going that way. Uh, we saw what happened in California with free speech on pro-life issues involving pregnancy centers that were being forced to sell the services of abortion clinics. Uh, this was not uh, a slippery slope argument that was being made. It was reality. This was happening. And had we not seen the election results we did in 2016, I think that would have continued and may continue again in this country and yours in the future. So I think the external threat is that will we still be able to get our views out there without threat of legal prosecution? Internally, it's a fight for messaging. What does it mean to be pro-life? And that, to me, is the bigger fight of the two right now. My final question is one that uh, I think I'm interested in hearing the answer to as much as any of our, our listeners might be is I've spent a lot of time studying the history of the pro-life movement. Uh, history is my educational background. It's the topic that's always fascinated me the most. And so I've read a lot of books on on how things got to where they are here in the United States, the history of the pro-life movement. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, the number of, of men and women who did tremendous things uh, in the pro-life movement, uh, but then flamed out for any number of reasons. It's, you know, sometimes, as you pointed out, a moral crisis that they, they, could, they couldn't overcome because of blind spots that they had allowed to flourish. But, but plenty of times simply due to burnout. I, I don't think yeah. those who haven't done this work for an extended period of time um, can fully understand the burden, the weight of the corpses of the millions of babies that can press down on you especially when you don't learn how to compartmentalize properly because it's the the reality that we face can crush us if if we if we don't figure out how to live our lives in balanced ways but also recognize that we simply cannot live inside that reality all of the time i think that's been one of the hardest things for me and for many of my colleagues uh, at the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform is recognizing that just because this is true it doesn't mean that you have to, you know, face it every day, all day, because you will go insane. So how have you managed to overcome those obstacles and remain in the movement and, and effective and growing your organization for so long? There are two ways that have helped me. The first is a theological uh, point of view. This is a fallen world, as you know, Jonathan. It's a very broken world. But it's also the same world where God raised Jesus from the dead. And if resurrection truth is real and knowable, there is hope for each day. There is hope to do some good no matter how dark the overall picture is. The second thing that keeps me going is being very focused on what my job description is. My job description is not to fix everything wrong with the world that relates to abortion. My job description is to do the one thing I can do best, what God has given me to do, and that is to make sure we're getting pro-life content, pro-life apologetics content, out to students. And it doesn't matter to me uh, what happens in a midterm election, 
or what happens with a court decision. I'm going to get up every day and do that job and do it to the best of my abilities and knowing that at the end of the day, that's what God is going to hold me accountable for. What did I do in terms of the task that I took on to end this evil? And it's the the understanding that I can bring something to this debate and bless the pro-life movement with something unique that keeps me going. And I have plenty of discouraging days, as do you. Uh, I'll tell you what, if I could hire um, a an army of pro-life advocates to work here in the U.S. for 10 years straight, I'd grab Brits and I'd grab Canadians. Because you guys have really been under it, and you know how to fight, and you're not afraid of the opposition. The opposition you face up there is much fiercer than what we face here, and uh, my hat is off to you. And like you, I've had to learn to compartmentalize. And I think that not only having some hobbies, some distractions, but also the theological truth that this is the world where God raised Jesus from the dead, and the specialization of way of thinking of things where you say, hey, I can take a piece of this and make a real difference. I don't have to solve all of it. I'm going to solve the part of this that I can deal with. And for me, that's training pro-lifers to make their case and reaching students with pro-life apologetics content. Well, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. As, as always, by the way, if your listeners don't know it, your guide to assisted suicide is the best book on the subject out there, bar none. Well, thank you. Uh, that is an incredible book. I've been talking it up all over the place, and uh, uh, I hope this makes the editorial cut. But if your listeners have not read that book, they need to get it. It is outstanding. I've never read a book on the subject that not only gives a great philosophical foundation, but gives the tactical approaches to engaging people on this. And the most important part of that book is you expose the premise that's really driving the debate over doctor-assisted suicide and euthanasia. It's not autonomy. It's not choice. It's not self-determination. It's a worldview premise that says some lives are not worthy of life. And that is precisely correct. And boy, do you expose that well in the book. Well, I really appreciate that endorsement. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with pro-life apologist Scott Klusendorf talking about the state of the pro-life movement and how he first got involved in the pro-life movement. Thank you so much again for joining us this week and listening to this show. We hope you'll go to lifesitenews.com to check out more news articles and previous podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you join us next week.